Welcome to Ask Dr. Julie Hanks, a safe place for healing conversations that educate and empower you to prioritize your dreams, revolutionize your family, and personalize your faith. I'm your host, Dr. Julie Hanks, a psychotherapist and coach offering online courses and programs to help women all over the world heal themselves and their relationships. Join me here every week as I coach a listener through a specific challenge and empower them with tools to find healing. Hello, friends. Welcome to this Instagram Live. I will soon be joined by Dr. Botsheva. Um, she is an amazing Orthodox Jewish therapist, author, and speaker. And I'm excited to talk about developing sexual confidence because we're both from different but still conservative religious backgrounds. So I'm excited to have her join me. Hello. Hi, Julie. It's like always a miracle to me when the, when the technology works. I know. <laughs> I know. It's like crazy, right? It's so nice to meet you, Batsheva. I'm such a big fan. I just want you to know that. <laughs> well, I'm a fan of you too. So I'm really excited for this chance to talk with you and kind of compare our different conservative religious backgrounds and how that impacts sexuality. Are you right. up for that? It's amazing, right? It's amazing how, you know, I'm Orthodox Jewish yeah. and you are LDS and like the difference, I mean, you just see so many similarities. It's insane, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I look at your posts and I keep wanting to share them about, you know, modesty issues and like women being expected to cover their bodies to keep the men safe. Yeah. Oh, good, good. Well, so how was sexuality taught when you were growing up in your faith tradition? It was not. It was okay. not taught. It was not taught. I mean, all physical contact between boys and girls was not allowed. Mm. All physical contact. We're talking holding hands. Holding hands was not allowed. Wow. Physical contact. Now, did most people keep that? No. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it depends what part of the community you're in. You know, I don't know how sort of variegated the LDS community is, but the Jewish community has a very, very religious core. Like, group, you suddenly see them with the black hats or the, the you know, the Hasidim with the, mm -hmm. you know, um, the curls. And then there's Orthodox people who are more modern. And then mm -hmm. there's, you know, and then there's people who are just not even religious. So I assume that you have as well. But, yeah. so, but technically speaking, there are parts of the Orthodox Jewish community where people meet once and then get married. So that's not really the community I'm from. I'm from a more what we call modern Orthodox but mm -hmm. technically, there is should be no physical contact at all beforehand. And there's very little sex education. And then before you get married, you get sort of the talk. Mm. From who? Who gives the talk? So that's a great question. I don't know if you watch the show Unorthodox. People love that show, that TV show. Yes. Did you watch it? Yes. yes. I must have gotten 300 phone calls when that show came out because it was the... <laughs> it was the it was the intersection between my two things. Like mm -hmm. I deal with vaginismus all the time. Like I'm a specialist mm -hmm. in that and Orthodox Judaism. So usually the talk is given by a bridal teacher, a cop, we call okay. them college teachers. And they're mm -hmm. because now this gets really complicated, Julie. So you may be sorry to ask this question, but Orthodox Judaism has a huge number of laws after you get married as well. Like from the time mm -hmm. that you're menstruating, you're not allowed to touch your partner, your husband, for about, about 12 days until your blood stops and you, you do it, you know, internal exams. And then you go to a ritual bath 
before you're allowed to resume touching each other. I know. So there's a lot, a lot of laws about that. And people take that very, very seriously. And it's yeah. sort of a major tenant in the Orthodox Jewish community. And so you have to learn all those laws before you get married. So I, I think I just took you down a long rabbit hole, but. Um, but I, I'm learning, I'm learning a lot. So how did, how did the teachings that you grew up with impact your sexuality as an adult? It had a huge impact. So I was so angry that I didn't get good sex education. I mean, I was a pretty rebellious teenager. I'm going to digress. You probably were too. Were you were- I was not. I'm a more rebellious adult than I was a teenager. Really? Okay. Yes. Good. So I was kind of a little bit rebellious and there was no way I wasn't touching boys before I got married. That's for sure. And, um, and I was really, and, and the funniest thing is my father was a biochemist. So he was very into, he was a scientist. He was very into us having good genetic um, education, but he could not, nobody talked to us about intercourse. I always tell the story about how when I was in fifth grade, we were, had a Bible class and um, some of the teachers said something about how to have people get, have babies. And I said, oh, you pray to God. This is fifth grade. Okay. Okay. And the, the girl behind me started cracking up because clearly her parents had talked to her. And um, I still remember her name to this day. It was Myra Brodsky. And at recess, she straightened me out because I had no clue. And she taught you. (laughs) She she taught me. And then, and then years and years later, when my daughter was around that same age, I was telling that story to somebody, Julie. And my daughter said, Oh my God, I think I Myra Brodsky somebody. She must've explained how babies were made to somebody else. <laughs> I think that's oh. anyway, so I didn't really get good sex education. Um, yeah. You know, there was a podcast I did years ago called Preach uh, about the messiness of faith, where I talk a lot about sort of my exploration to try to understand this. I really was sort of committed to making a difference in the community. And so, you know, when I became a sex therapist, I mean, I became, I was teaching galas and I was, you know, I was teaching brides and I mm-hmm. sort of self educated. Um, but I really, it, became sort of a passion of mine, making sure that people are more educated. There's The community has changed. I don't know if the LDS community, but I feel like the Orthodox Jewish community has changed more. There's, they're trying to do better sex education. They, Julie, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like it's a parent's job. It's not the school's yeah. job. It's not the school's job. It's not the rabbi's job. It's the parents have to take responsibility. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I think everyone else can support good education and be kind of the... Um, safety net but i do i do agree parents take the lead you be the main teacher because i mean as a parent i have four children and i want to teach them my values not just the mechanics of sex but my values in terms of relationships and the importance of families and communication and what sexuality means and all of that good stuff so only parents can teach their values. values. Yeah. Totally. yeah. And, and I always say that's parents. This is your one opportunity. Like if you want to create your values, but the problem is I'm not sure parents don't always know themselves. They have to define yeah. for themselves what their values are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you have three master's degrees and a PhD, right? So I, I just need to like make sure that my audience knows that. Uh, master's in Jewish studies, master's in social work, master's in public health, and PhD in human sexuality. So you you ha- really have an interest in the intersection of faith, health, and sexuality, and therapy. I love it. 
Love it. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely started with the, in the Orthodox Jewish community. And then yeah. over the years, I built a very large sexual health center. And um, then my interest really shifted to the sort of the interplay between our psychological and our physiological selves. Because I feel like women, men also, but women in particular get lost in that shuffle. Yeah. They, they blame themselves all the time or they blame their relationship all the time. when there could be so many other physiological factors involved. Yeah. Yeah. So let's define, and we're talking about developing sexual confidence for women. So what, what is, how do you define sexual confidence? So it's such a good question. Cause I was thinking about that in you know anticipation of talking to, to everybody tonight. And I, I feel like sexual confidence comes from not being, not having shame, like just mm. saying, I don't know. Everybody doesn't know. So, you know, I think that, you know, this idea that there's experts out there, that Bacheva has all the answers or that Julie has all the answers, it's just not true, ladies. You know what I mean? Like, it isn't true. Not knowing and being okay with not knowing is fine. And nobody could possibly know what works for you, right? Like, and not being afraid to sort of ask for what you need. Ask for what you need from your partner. Ask for what you need from your healthcare provider, being able to not have the shame of saying, okay, I don't know this. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to ask questions or I think there should be a solution to this. Can somebody help me with it? I feel like that's 90% of the issue for people. People come into my office and they're so scared and ashamed and like people's problems are so common. Like I just, if if I'm nickel for every woman who's like, am I normal? Yes, you're normal. You're normal. So I feel like sexual confidence is being able to say, I don't know, and it's okay, and I'm not going to have shame. What do you think? Mm. What do you think? Yeah, I, I love that. Shame-free uh, acknowledgement of what we don't know. And then I think I would add to that responsibility to find out the information, to educate ourselves, and to express ourselves fully in the sexual realm. Right. And to realize there's no right way to be sexually, right? There's no right way to be. Like, Havelock Ellis, he was one of the first sexual researchers like 150 years ago. And he said something which I loved, which is that, you know, people shouldn't assume that everybody, you know, people don't make assumptions that people from other cultures behave the same way they do sexually, like you and your neighbors do, right? Like somebody from Italy or somebody from Africa might have very different worries than you and your neighbors. But what you don't realize is that your neighbors may have, Totally different totally. ways than you, right? Because so that you know, we're less conscious of. And that I feel like as soon as you're kind of aware of that, as soon as you say to yourself, sex is different for different people, there's no right answer for this. I feel like that yes. really, really helps. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Um, okay, so many of my followers, and it sounds like yours, did you uh, grew up with purity culture? You know, like, I mean, yours is, your culture is way we're more extreme course. than, I than know. LDS. I, I'm like, whoa, we're so progressive. You can hold hands. We can hold hands and kiss. But that purity culture has impacted their sexuality as an adult. So how can women start working through the messages of purity culture and that like, no, 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 no. And then you're married. And then all of a sudden you're supposed yes, to be. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I feel like that's like the, like, you know, I call it going from like zero to 60, like overnight, you know, and yeah. not only that, they think the wedding night's going to be so great. I'm like, seriously. Yeah. 
<laughs> I was joking with no around. education and no anything, right? Like, how like, can it be great? Like, seriously, like, I was, you know, there was um somebody was talking about this this Jewish, you know, law, which basically you don't touch your part, you don't touch your husband for two weeks out of the month. I mean, now people use pills so they don't get their periods often, but um, it's crazy. And and then somebody wrote, you know, a Jewish male philosopher wrote, oh, it's amazing that when you come back from the ritual bath and you're you get you know, reconnected with your husband. It's like, you're, it's like you're a bride and a wedding night every time. And I'm like, that's horrible. <laughs> you're like, that's bride not the goal. That is terrible. That is not the gold standard. <laughs> so, um, so, so how do you, how do women work through that? So I, I would say to women, this is one where there just isn't really a shortcut. There's no shortcut. This is just, I think a lot of acknowledging the discomfort Talking it through with yourself, with your partner, with your friends. You know, one of the things about shame and purity culture is another, it's a shaming. Basically, all of us is sex is bad, you know. Sex is good theoretically, but it's bad practically, right? It's this like right. crazy double message. And the only way to get rid of shame in general, in any way, shape, or form, whether it's been abuse or if it's just, you know, the regular growing up in a religious environment is to take it out of the darkness and talk about it. Like, I, I feel like, you know, you have a coat rack in the corner when the light's off, it looks like a big monster with three heads and then you turn the lights on and it's just a coat and, you know, three hats. And the more you talk about something, the more you bring it out into the light of day and make it yeah. something that's no longer shameful and no longer scary. Um, and so I really do think, like, if you feel like you're carrying around a lot of, like, baggage... A therapist is a great person to talk to, just like yeah. to talk it out with. I mean, I think there's some amazing therapists out there, but also it doesn't need to be a therapist. You could talk to your partner, you could talk to your friends, you could talk to your mom, you know, like you just, you, it's, I think that talking about it is really, really helpful. So that's number one. And number two, Julie, this is something that took me a while to kind of figure out. I think it helps people to know that sometimes it's not even the religion. Like I have so many secular patients who also walk around with so much shame. Mm -hmm. And in some ways it's harder for them than my religious clients because the religious clients at least can hang it on the fact that they grew up in a community where sex was kind of, you know, not okay for button. Yeah. But my secular clients are like, I grew up in a sort of okay environment. Nobody said anything bad. And I have so much shame. Where the hell is that coming from? Yeah. And I think knowing that sometimes can be extremely valuable to my more religious clients who grew up with all of this. You know, that it, religion's not the only factor, right? There's a lot of just broader societal messages. And it's in the air, Julie. It's just yeah. in the yeah. air. I don't, I don't know what that's about. I haven't figured it out yet. I, maybe it's the parenting thing. Maybe we're back to the parenting thing, but yeah, but I feel like acknowledging that you grew up in an environment that didn't talk about sex, but that you can change that. You can change that by talking about it. And I, I feel like that is the most, and acknowledging it, like owning it. I feel like owning it is like half the battle. Deb, what's your, what's your experience with that? Yeah, I, I totally agree uh, that having conversations, talking about it is what, uh, what reduces shame. And I was just thinking as you were talking that we live in a, in a culture that doesn't talk about sex in reality, but then idealizes sex in 
kind of visual images and paints this idea that's not real. So we're, we're kind of even at more of a disadvantage because we have this expectation that's unrealistic. And then we don't have the skills and the tools and the, the openness and confidence to, to actually deal with sexuality in the real world. Right. No, I think I, I will often say, and this is another variation of exactly what you're saying, which is that we live in a time and place where sex is just, we're just saturated with pictures and movies and television shows and advertisements and everything about sex. And yet nobody is having real conversations about like the reality and the problems and the things that everybody bumps into. Like who's having those conversations? Like, right. right. That's totally, totally right. So is there any surprise that people feel like so much shame and so isolated? Like it doesn't, it just feels like it's just so much, we just need to shift the conversation, Julie. Yeah. Like I feel like yeah. we need to have conversations where, okay, you're having pain. Here's what might be the issue. You know, mm-hmm. low desire doesn't mean that your relationship's terrible. It may be your hormones, or it may mean that you've turned your erotic brain off, or it may be that, you know, it's time to get yourself some vibrators. Like those are the conversations I think that can be super helpful to women. But I, I just think that those are not the conversations we're having, you know? Right. Well, I'm glad you're having them. I'm trying to have them. So yay us, right? <laughs> Wonderful. I'm curious in, in your faith tradition uh, with your Orthodox Jewish clients, how do you help single people develop sexual confidence when they're not being sexually active? So ironically, Julie, this is a very funny, uh, masturbation for men is extremely frowned upon in almost every religion. I think that's just pretty obvious, right? So it's very frowned upon in the Orthodox Jewish community. And that's a big problem because that just, that just brings huge amounts of shame. Ironically, Julie, the Orthodox Jewish never even dealt with the fact that women could masturbate. Like, it's just that, like, the Jewish law didn't ever touch that because it was so out of the realm of, like, women as sexual beings. Like, it was just not, so it's almost not talked about at all, which leaves it kind of wide open to not being, like, a religious prohibition, the same way male masturbation Isn't that That interesting? That is interesting, Baksheva. Oh, my goodness. Now, it's a little esoteric because, you know, it doesn't matter because you have a, right. you know, a religious girl who grows up and she kind of knows masturbation is bad, even though there isn't any Jewish laws against it, per se. Like, it's still not, not done. You know, good girls yeah. don't do it, right? Yeah. So my job is very often, it's so funny, I just got finished with a client who, you know, is struggling with her sex life with her husband. And I was like, we need to start with your sex life with yourself, right? Mm. Let's start with your sex life with yourself. And that is when you talk about confidence. My message to teenage girls is always, you need to learn your body. Like you need to learn your body. Teenage girls, young women, anybody who doesn't know their body yet, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds, 8-year-olds, if you don't know your body yet, it is time to learn your body. And um, I just feel like, and, and the message can be in the more sort of conservative communities, when you learn your body and you learn what gives you pleasure, then you then you can be a partner and your partner can give you pleasure. How is your partner going to give you pleasure if you don't know yourself what you're going to give pleasure to? So yeah. a lot of my work with these women is that is often learning to love your own body and how to do that. Mm. Um, seeing hearts, people are liking that. And I think that you know, <laughs> they're like, yes, yes. Exactly. Now, what's funny is that when I'm talking to rabbis very often, which I have to do, 
I almost never use the term masturbation. I think I had this conversation with somebody else from the LDS community, it was Kristen Hansen, about the fact that we never mm. use the word masturbation mm. because it somehow triggers people. So I will say, you know, I'm teaching her how to touch herself, learning how to give herself pleasure, you know, if she can teach herself how to have an orgasm, as opposed to if I say she masturbates, you know, like all of a sudden, it's so funny. I, I like there's certain language that just sets people off. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that is critically important, like teaching women to, you know, I always say to women, like, little well, girls, like pull out a mirror, look at your vulva, look at how is there a part of your body that you haven't seen? Do you know I mean? Like you need to know it and see it. And for a whole variety of reasons, I I was, am I talking too fast? That's a Jewish thing. <laughs> I love it. Love it. I'm with you. I'll try to slow it down a little. Guys, if I'm talking too fast, you can just send like, I don't know, thumbs or something and I'll try to, um, so um, I was talking to a girl's high school class and I said, them, you need to get a mirror. You need to look at your body. You need to figure out what feels good. And one of the girls said to me, oh my God, it sounds like you're telling us we should be masturbating. And I'm like, yes, you should be masturbating. And she said, that is like the worst insult a boy can hurl at us in the school is you're so hard up, you must masturbate. And I said, well, the next time you hear that insult, you turn around to that boy and you say, you should be so lucky as to get to be with a girl who masturbates. <laughs> Just turn it around. So I, I do think, I mean, I assume is masturbation friend upon also in the LDS community? It is for men and women. Right. Um, there are a group of therapists who are trying to kind of say, you know what, this is kind of normal people. Let's like relax on the, sh because there's so much shame and such a high percentage of people masturbate. And so we have all these people walking around feeling like something's wrong with them when it's actually, you know, from a science point of view, really normal and, and necessary and necessary. Mm -hmm. And what's funny I find is that the boys they do it and they feel terribly guilty. They feel like they're going to be, you know, burned in hell forever. The girls just don't do it. And that's, mm. I mean, I don't know which one of those is worse, you know, and because, you know, I, the boys end up feeling this horrible sense of shame and guilt that needs to then be like somehow worked through. But the girls just end up not knowing their body. When you talk about sexual confidence, oh my God, the difference between a woman who knows what feels good and can make herself have an orgasm or make herself feel good is totally different than a woman who's like, I don't know what's down there. Yeah, yeah. How can you teach someone something you don't know? So, yeah, love it. Okay, so you talked about, what, what's the teacher of the bride called? A kala? Yeah, kala or kala means bride. So okay. bridal teacher, kala teacher, uh-huh. Okay, so in, in LDS culture, there's, it, I mean, this is a, unofficial, but women before marriage tend to go to their pre-marriage gynecological appointment and get information there. I'm just curious. Um, is that good? Well, at least they're going to talk to somebody. So that's good. Um, okay. I guess it depends on who their gynecologist is. It Exactly. And if it's like, I think one of the problems is there's often an assumption that sex is it will hurt or like, you know, yeah, I, I just think like and a lot, of, a lot of gynecologists are male. Uh, and so is that true in the LDS community? Well, just, I in mean, Utah? doctors in Utah. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, because in New York, I think at this point it's like, 
80, 20 women, 80% women. You know what? I'm going to have to get back to you on that. I'm going to look up the stats because I could be wrong. And that was just my experience when I was growing up, but it may be different now. Um, but because women in the LDS faith are encouraged to stay home and be full-time caregivers, that kind of discourages women mm-hmm. from doctors. Right. So there's not, Fascinating. it's not like, oh yeah, go be a doctor. You know, I, there are LDS female doctors. There are a lot of them, yeah, but, right, right. but not as many as maybe in other cultures um, or other cultures. places. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is really fascinating. Yeah. So the Jewish other women do not go to an exam beforehand. And part of the reason they don't go for an exam is they're not really supposed to have internal exams until they get married because they have to keep their virginity, which makes me crazy, Julie. Like I can't even mm-hmm. tell you how crazy it is because that's, <laughs> that's because not losing your having a an exam. I don't even know what it is means. not having sex. <laughs> I don't even know what it means to be a virgin. Like I just like laugh. Um, you know, I did a, on my Instagram, I did, a, I tried to like with using tissue paper, show like what a hymen looks like and how it rips because people have such a distorted view of what that means to be a virgin. Right. So, um, but it's, so women don't go for an oncological exam and what's fascinating. And I, you know, I don't even know about the LDS community. I'd love to know this. So, you know, the condition vaginismus. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for everybody who's watching, um, vaginism is a condition where there's severe pain when you insert a penis in a vagina, a finger in a vagina, uh, anything. It could be a very wide range. Some people can get a finger in, but not a penis, but there's pain upon entry. It is so common. The statistic is one out of 10, Julie. Okay. Wow. One out of 10 women. And women walk around with so much shame about this. Like mm-hmm. so much, like women who have it either live through the pain, they get that penis in, but it hurts like hell and they just keep doing it. And it just makes the problem worse because basically it's tight muscles. And so you panic, like your brain knows pain, your brain tightens the muscles. It makes it worse. So one, some women go through it that way. And some women can't actually have intercourse. It feels like it's slamming against a brick wall and they feel like they're crazy and there's something wrong with them. And, you know, sometimes it destroys relationships because, you know, they can't have intercourse. So then they stop having any kind of sex and they don't tell anybody. And it's so treatable, Julie. It's like the most treatable condition. Like mm-hmm. I, any, if anybody's listening to this and has vaginismus, like it is totally treatable. The secondary impact of it, the, the lost relationships, the stopping to communicate, the stopping to touch each other. Those are much harder to fix in the long run. Mm-hmm. But what was I about to, oh, I know the Orthodox Jewish community has a, such a high rate of this, the Indian community and the Orthodox Jewish community. And I don't know about the LDS community. I don't, I don't think I've ever had an LDS client that I have with, and I'm fascinated by that. And I don't know why. I will have to ask some of my sex therapy colleagues that practice about primarily that. with LDS. Yeah. Yeah. What, I would love what they're to- seeing. Yeah, it could be that I haven't seen them because I'm in New York and there's a smaller community where they go to LDS sex therapists. But I see so many Orthodox Jewish women, so many Indian women. Um, and and I think it's because, you know, I was talking to an Indian woman once and I was like, we were talking about it. And she said, well, we get no sex education and we start having intercourse much later than the average. Mm. So, you know, that's an interesting question. Are the young people in the LDS community actually 
not having intercourse or are they or are they having intercourse? Because when you start having intercourse when you're 15 or 16, those muscles are more pliable. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I mean, now I'm like all curious. I need to do some investigating here. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm curious also. So, um, yeah. Anyways. So I, um, I don't even know how we got down that road exactly. I don't remember. Sorry. That's okay. What, what are some other common sexual problems that people present in your practice? So we have a lot of um, pain. I see a lot mm-hmm. of pain. And often that is either the vaginismus or it could be vulvodynia or vestibulodynia. That is very commonly connected to the um, birth control pills. Mm. people don't realize, and I'm not anti-birth, like, please don't leave here thinking I'm anti-birth control pills. I have a love-hate relationship with them. I think they're amazing, amazing for many women, most women, but for some women, they do a real number on their ability to get aroused and turned on and desire and, and really on their vagina, really to make the vagina really skin, you know, paper thin and, and mm-hmm. almost like, it's almost like a menopausal vagina sometimes. Mm. So, um, so that's very common. Low desire is like, I see that all the time. And I somehow think that, that sometimes that's hormonal. Sometimes that's birth control pills. Sometimes there's other, you know, drugs that people are on and you shouldn't limit that. But I do think that people have like odd expectations about what desire with sex is about. And, and this really does come back to the confidence issue. I think mm-hmm. sometimes women think that they're going to sit there and the desire for sex is just going to pixie dust just down on them. Right. And having a sex life and an ongoing sex life takes work the same way that having a relationship and, you know, having an ongoing marriage or relationship, it's work. Like you have to put the time and effort into it. And I think people don't realize that desire is something you can actually work on and make better. It's not something that just you either have or you don't have. And Mm. I don't know if you encounter that, but it's really fascinating to me when I see that. Yeah. So, so share, what are some ways that you help your clients cultivate more desire? So one of the things I, the, one of the things that I think is, I, I'm just going to say as a hazard is that when people are having low desire, often they immediately assume it's their relationship. Like something's wrong with the relationship or else I would have desire. And I just find that a little bit amusing because <clears throat> one second. This is a therapy voice after a day of therapy. You're like, oh, yeah, which is bad because I shouldn't be talking, I should be listening. But anyway, okay. Um, so, you know, here's the example I often will give. If you see two 17 year olds and they're in line for a movie or something and they cannot keep their hands off each other, they're just like all over each other. Your first thought, Julie, is not, oh my God, they must have had a really meaningful conversation, right? That's not your first thought, right? Your first thought is not, oh, he must have bought her, brought her roses. Like, that's not your first thought. Your first thought is their hormones are raging, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we're very conscious of young people and how their hormones really impact on their desire levels. But somehow when people turn, you know, 35 or 40 or 45, all of a sudden, it's all about the relationship. It's all about the communication. It's all, And I just think that's, I don't know how much the foul language you can use, but anyway, I just don't think that's, that's not true. That's, yes. Yeah, how exactly. about that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like people need to realize that as you're having babies and as you're nursing and as you're hitting perimenopause, your hormones are doing all kinds of kooky things and you're on birth control pills. So you should really pay attention to that and maybe look into it. And I I talk a lot about that in my book because I feel like that gets lost in the shuffle and it makes me crazy because I feel like 
you know, people are just like going down this rabbit hole with the problems in the relationship when there is no problem. It's a perfectly fine relationship. There's just their sex life is a problem. So, okay. Yeah. So because of hormones, right. Or something yes, else, right. Exactly. Or medication. Um, yeah. Lots yeah, of SSRI, other factors. Right. Antidepressant mm-hmm. medications, all kinds of things. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, um, you mentioned your book. I would love to share about more about your book with my with my friends here on Instagram. Do you want to just take a minute sure, and sh- sure. share more about it? This a little bit. The book is called Sex Points. There's a there it is. There it is. Um, mm-hmm. It basically is. It starts with a quiz. Like I tried to take this whole idea of the the psychological and the physiological and make it really manageable for people in a way that makes it easy for them to kind of not only understand but access. So it starts with a questionnaire that lets you figure out is, if you're having problems, is it a problem with desire? Is it a problem with arousal, which is a separate thing? Is it a problem with orgasm? Is it a problem with pain? And if, and then it becomes like choose your own adventure, right? Like if it's, if it's arousal, then try, you know, chapter 12 and travel 17. And if it's desire, you know, read chapters 11, 12, and nine or something, you know? So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so for example, when you talk about low desire, I say one thing I need you to look at is this whole hormonal profile piece. So that really is important, but let's assume your hormones are okay. And, you know, I could talk for an hour and a half about doctors who say your hormones are okay and they're not, but okay. So let's say your hormones are, you get, you're getting your help with your hormones or you're switching your birth control or whatever it is. One of the things, and there's a lot of things that could help, but one of the things that I have found, Julie, is that women sort of, they turn off their brain, their erotic brain. And we know that when you don't use parts of your brain, that part of your brain prunes down, right? It actually Mm -hmm. shuts down some of the neural pathways. Mm -hmm. Your brain's very efficient. If you're not using it, it shuts down those neural pathways. Like if you... If you start, if you, if you don't speak a language for a long time, then it's going to be hard to speak that language. But once you start speaking it, it's going to, it's going to come back. And now that it's easy to learn another language, right? Because a whole part of your brain starts getting like those neurotransmitters just start popping up again, right? They get blood Mm -hmm. and they start moving. If you don't think about erotic things, if you don't keep that part of your erotic brain going, that part of your erotic brain is going to be like, you don't need me. I'm shutting down. So Mm. you can get it back again, but it's work. And people don't realize that learning to fantasize, learning to think about erotic things, figuring out what turns you on and getting your brain to function in that way is incredibly powerful. Like, and really you can turn things around a lot by refocusing, especially women who like you've been married for a while, you have little kids, you're not thinking erotically, right? Um, (laughs) You're barely getting through the day some days, right? Totally. You're like barely showering. You're dripping from every orifice if you're nursing, right? Like it's really hard. But what I'm going to say, and and that's fine. And maybe you need to take a break from your erotic life for a little bit. But when it's time to get back to it, if it's not there, don't panic. It just means that it hasn't been used in a while and that Mm. you can get it back again. So um, Mm. one of the things I talk a lot about is kind of how to get your erotic brain functioning again. Cause I feel like that is just so critical for so many women. That is a great point. Thank you for sharing that. I think, I think we don't talk enough about that, that it's, this is, it's a skill and it actually takes practice to develop that part of your brain. I thank right. you for and sharing so that. Easy, and it's so easy to shut that down. 
The other thing yeah. I think that gets lost in the shuffle here, and this is also kind of, I don't know, this is a little unpopular, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, we have this myth that the more comfortable you are in a relationship, the better the sex will be. And that's actually a myth because mm. eroticism and comfort do not necessarily live hand in hand. If you think back about the sexiest part of your relationship, often it's early on when you're not really sure, you're a little uncomfortable, you're a little a little nervous, a little scared, right? Those are actually, you know, those butterflies in your stomach are a little bit of nerves. And so, you know, when you're in the flannel pajama stage of where you have sex the same way all the time with the same person, it isn't erotic. It just isn't erotic. And so part of what I try to talk to people about is moving into the discomfort. Like that could be trying new things. And people are like, what? We've been married for 20 years and now I'm going to tell him I want him to tie me up. Like, really? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, he's going to be like, who the hell are you? Like, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> but I'm going to say, or, or more simply, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 40 years old and I've never tried a vibrator. You really want me to try a vibrator now? And I'm like, yes, I really do. Why are you like, and, and, and then people say, well, but I'd be so uncomfortable. And I'm like, yes. When you, when you start feeling uncomfortable, you know you're in the right direction. Mm, mm. And I feel like that is such, um, it's such a weird, now, obviously, let, let me just put this in context. You have to be in a situation where you feel safe, right? Like you're in a relationship where you feel safe and loved and cared for. And I, that, like, I'm just, but beyond that, too safe is just very not sexy, you know? And yes. so it isn't. Yeah. So moving out of your comfort zone like when people we uh, talk to people about you know trying different things or whatever and they'll be like "Ooh, but that's gonna be uncomfortable and I'm like yes that's amazing <laughs> because you'll try something new you may end up laughing you may end up just bursting out laughing if you try something and you know you tie your husband up and you're or you're role-playing and all of a sudden somebody breaks character or somebody just starts cracking up so okay the worst that'll happen is you'll laugh but what might also happen is you might refine some of that hot new eroticism that you lose when you get too comfortable with somebody. Mm. Interesting. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, I feel like it's such a different way of looking. You know, look, yeah. when relationships get boring, you get a choice. You could just go out and find a new relationship. But for those of us who believe, and this is where I really love my culture, that really believes in stability and family and long-term monogamous. Like monogamy is hard, Julie. Like it's, we, we pretend that it's not. And I feel like our religions say monogamy, it's amazing and it's the best. And it is in many, many ways, but it's also really hard. And it takes a certain amount of work to keep it new and alive and exciting. And being a little uncomfortable is just part of that. Yeah, yeah. In my practice, what I've seen a lot is people who, are married and think that they're not going to have attraction to other people. And then they think something's wrong with their marriage. And then they think something's wrong with them. And, and it's like, Oh no, you're still human. Like that's, you know, cause there's this myth that you won't, won't find attract anyone else attractive other than your partner. And it's like, no, <laughs> totally. don't just turn off. I'm so glad you raised that because the other place I see it with women in terms of fantasizing, right? They feel guilty when they fantasize about somebody besides their husband. And I'm like, mm -hmm. seriously? So there's a two, it's a double-edged sword here, Julie. Because on the one hand, they feel really guilty about fantasizing about other people because they feel like it's cheating somehow. 
And many times they're like, the second piece of that is, well, I don't want him thinking about anybody but me ever. And oh, I, right, I, right. I just, I remember so clearly, I had one client I was talking to and she was feeling that way. And she had a grown daughter. She had like a 21 year old who had a boyfriend. And I was like, just for curiosity, if, if your daughter marries this guy and for the next 40 years of their life, he only thinks about her and he only fantasizes about her and he only dreams about her. Would you think that was normal? And she was like, oh my God, it sounds like a stalker. Oh my gosh. And she was like, you're right. Of course, that's ridiculous, right? Like the expectation, which is a variation of what you're saying, right? Like the expectation that you're never going to get turned on by other people or you're never going to, you know, really um, fantasize or think about other people. And I'm like all about like bring that energy home, like mm. fantasize away. You go, girl, you fantasize and of course, and as long as you're bringing that energy, that sexual energy that gets developed back into your sex life with your partner, it's all good. It's all mm. good. And I think that also has to do with the level of confidence. Like when you feel like your sex life is on track, it's fine if your partner is like, so what if he's thinking of Angelina Jolie? It doesn't really mean he wants to be sleeping with Angelina. It just means that he likes thinking about Angelina Jolie because it makes the sex with you better. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that. But Sheva, are you, are you comfortable taking a few questions from our of course. viewers? That we have, we've had a couple of questions come in. Let's see. Okay. How is, how is vaginismus treated? A great question. And I could talk for an hour and a half on that, but um, usually if it's not too severe, um, you use dilators, vaginal dilators they're like mm -hmm. sticks that I don't know how to describe them other than they're like usually white plastic sticks. They start with very small, thin ones, very low tech. And you like insert it and you, until the pelvic floor relaxes around it and then you move it around. And then every week or two weeks, you go up to a bigger and bigger, bigger size until you basically have something that's the size of a penis in it. Now that's the physiological piece of it. The psychological piece is talking through the fear of it because it's a phobia like many other things. Um, and um, so talking with a therapist while you're doing that is the most effective way to do it. If you know somebody who has this and they see a therapist and the therapist thinks that just talking it through is going to work, run the other direction because this is something where you need the physiology as well. So that is essentially how that's treated. In very more severe cases, um, Botox can be used where the person's actually put under anesthesia for like 15 minutes, not short, and then... Um, you go in with a dilator and, and you basically you, the internal muscle is really tight and they just mm -hmm. open up that muscle. Once the patient's like under sedation, you can give, inject, we inject Botox up and down the vagina, the vaginal canal. Wow. And that stops it. What Botox does is stops, like you see my frown things, Botox doesn't let me do, like if I had Botox, it wouldn't let me do that. It won't let the muscles tighten. So the woman has like six months or so to be able to start using dilators, still have to dilate, but it doesn't hurt. And, and it, it's just much less stressful for these women who are very fearful. So that is a life-changing procedure for a bunch of women. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, oh, here's another one. How, how do you develop sexual confidence as a newlywed? You... I'm going to go back to, you talk about your fears. You talk about it with your husband. Um, you experiment. You give yourself a lot of grace and kindness, right? You say, and you talk to yourself. I'm really a big believer in talking to yourself. You, you say to yourself, like, 
Nobody has all the answers here. Nobody, everybody's self-conscious about their body. I feel self-conscious about my body. I feel uncomfortable. I don't know things. I should know things better. Those are messages that you want to start sort of identifying when you feel them and, and sort of naming them and then talking to yourself to make them. So you can say to yourself, you, you don't need to know everything. You're just getting married. And there's not everything to know. The only one who can know what feels good to you and what you like is you, right? So that is the conversation you want to have with yourself and with your husband. And if it starts to feel like it's just too much, like it just isn't really helping, then you find a professional. This is not deep-seated problems. It's not something you have to do for a year. You know, you could go to somebody a few times and just talk it through. And I think for most women, it's it's really dealing with their discomfort with their bodies, with their discomfort with sort of not knowing the shame that we talked about. Um, mm-hmm. And also just being sort of being open. And I'm going to use the word naked because I think that, it's you know, when you get, when you're having sex with somebody, you're not just naked physically, you're really opening yourself up to somebody. And that is, that is a hurdle. And it's a good one if you can get there. And, but it takes some like gentleness and practice with your partner to be able to be naked with them and honest with them and open with them in all those. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Do you have anything you'd add to that? I, I buy that. Uh, amen. Can I just say amen? <laughs> amen. Here's another question. How do you compromise when you have a higher sex drive than your partner? Oh, that's interesting. Is this a woman? I wonder if that's a woman. Is it a woman asking that question? Yes. Okay. So this is so interesting, Julie. I love this question and it's complicated because I usually get the other way, right? It's usually, it's usually the men. Mm-hmm. And it's, in some ways it's very painful to, because our society always assumes that the men are going to have a higher libido if the man wants more sex than the woman, they work, they sometimes have to negotiate, but it's sort of like understood all, that's just the way it is. But when the woman has a higher libido than the man, sometimes there's a lot of feelings of shame of the woman that somehow I'm not sexy enough, I'm not good enough, and that's just mm-hmm. not true. So whoever asked that question, you are sexy enough, you are good enough. So then I would say, you have to start asking a couple of, you need to start asking some more. I would ask, as a therapist, I would ask more questions. Like, does your partner want to have sex less than twice a week, less than once a week, less than once a month? Like there is a point where I say, okay, if there's a male partner and he really isn't that into sex, he should have his testosterone checked because that's really, really important. Now, if you're somebody who wants to have sex like every day or three times a week and your partner is just like, I'm just not into that. I want to have sex maybe once a week or twice a week. I would say there's always sex with yourself. Solo sex is great sex. So either sex where the, you know, the husband maybe just does you. That's one way sex. That's perfectly fine. Or you have sex by yourself. But if it's a matter of you're starting to feel like bad about yourself, then I think that's a conversation that you either have to have with your husband or with a counselor and your husband. And it really seems like he's really not into sex. I tell you, with men, it's a light switch, that testosterone. You give them testosterone and they're like raring to go. Like, and there's a lot more doctors who are sophisticated about treating men, of course, yeah. with low testosterone than there are doctors who treat women with low testosterone. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take one more. Okay. This is, this is a good one. Should we teach our kids it's okay to masturbate to avoid the shame we dealt with from our purity culture background? Yes. <laughs> so, so, so I, here's... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll ask. So 
I can only tell you in, the, in with the Jewish tradition, and I, you know, I, I always say what I encourage because I get this from like educators. They they're stuck, right? They feel like they can't say to the boys, "You should masturbate." They just can't because it really is like against Jewish law, right? But they know that it's important. And so what I will say is maybe the way to phrase it is, yeah, Jewish law says you shouldn't do it. But like, you know, that joke, 99% of boys masturbate, the other 1% lie about it. That's the joke. So as long as you give them that information, then it it takes away a lot of the shame and the guilt, right? Like that. And also, you know, certainly in the Jewish community, we've talked, I've talked to some of the rabbis about kind of reframing it of masturbating too much, masturbating all the time. That may be a problem, but regular, you know, masturbating once in a while is normal and healthy and you need to do it. And with girls, I feel like there, it's not even a matter of telling them it's okay. You have to actually actively encourage them to do it because for some reason, the girls get this message like, do not touch your body. And because I think their genitals are internal more, it's easier to ignore them. Like the boys have that penis. They're just like, you know, it's right there. It's just there. (laughs) Hard to ignore. They cannot ignore it. But with the girls, they ignore it. And that's really a problem because then you're not in touch with your sexuality. And then you get into a relationship and it becomes really, really difficult. Yeah, yeah. So in in the LDS faith, some bishops uh, will ask kids if they're masturbating. In order to tell them they should do it? Yes. And, yeah, I know. (laughs) We don't don't have that. Thank God. Good. Oh, good. I mean, I I shouldn't say we don't have that. It's not mainstream. There probably are a couple kooks out there, right? Okay. Yeah, so that's, so in order to be worthy, say, to, to, um. Is that like confession? Is that like. It's like confession. Exactly. And so uh, they're, I think, technically not supposed to ask details, but a lot of people do. And so it just is creating this culture of shame or lying, right? Because so I, I tell my clients to tell, teach their kids, you can say, that's my mom said I don't have to answer any questions about detailed sexual questions or that work? should go. Uh, yeah, sometimes. Okay. Or parents should go in there in these meetings too. That's kind of a push that, you know, kids shouldn't be meeting alone with an adult male anyway. I mean, the other question is kind of why the, they're asking. Like, I don't know. Like at some point it feels like information that is to be helpful turns into like prurient information. Like somehow people, that's what it feels like. And maybe I'm right. being unfairly. Because it's, it's viewed as sexual behavior. It's, it's viewed as like having sexual encounters with someone so are, else. Are, are children, are young people supposed to report those as well? Yes. Wow. Is the idea that it stop them from doing it if they know they have to report what, it? Or, or to be forgiven, right? It's considered a sin. Uh, and like, so like they're seeking, right. yeah, like confession, they're seeking forgiveness. But there, there is a, a lot of pushback from parents and from therapists and educators to, to stop those one-on-one meetings and, and especially to stop the sexual detailed conversations. So um, somebody, and just a talk- wrote in, somebody just wrote in that married couples sometimes are asked about it. I mean, married people are asked about it as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. Yeah. They asked about what they fantasize about? 
Um, if they, ma- I think she's talking about if they masturbate. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. Because it's not focused on your partner. Right. So there's, there's, we have some work to do. We're, I'm going to work to do. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> all of these, it's so interesting to like, I, I, I feel bad because I feel like I don't ever want to trash religion. Like I feel like mm-hmm. my religion is very important to me. Right. And there's some things that are amazing about the sense of community and, you know, support and, you know, connection yeah. to God, like those things are really, and yet it just feels like it becomes sometimes a breeding ground for things that are a little less good. Yeah. Like shame, sexual right. shame. Like sexual yeah. shame. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or, or even people. Yeah. It sometimes feels like when you t- make the rules too difficult, like people, the deviancy that, that comes because the normal things isn't, aren't allowed. Right. And, and that happens. Yes. And I yes. just, um, and you know, we don't, we can't talk about it because we don't have time, but the whole porn question, we haven't even touched the porn question. Oh so. my gosh. Okay. Let's, let's talk about the porn question. Is porn, is porn uh, discouraged in your faith community? It is totally discouraged, but I, you know, I think we just don't have good, porn is complicated. I always like to think about porn as alcohol, which I guess isn't a good analogy for you guys because you guys don't drink alcohol, right? <laughs> so, um, but in Judaism, we drink alcohol. And um, and I say, you know, the idea is to use porn the way you use, alcohol can get abused, right? But it also can be used very moderately for good things. So like, I think when people think about porn, I feel like, you know, people treat it as if it's like poison. But when it is, I'll tell you where it is poison. I don't think, I think for couples, it could be helpful sometimes. For just individuals who are learning to fantasize and use their brains, it could be helpful. Where I think it really is a problem is when it substitutes for sex education, which it does because so many of our communities don't do the sex education. So kids see porn and like that is what they think is real. And, you know, one of my first messages to teenagers is that like learning to have sex from porn is like learning how to drive by watching the fast and the furious right like yeah there's you know it's stuff man it's it's not real right Right. you know you wouldn't you wouldn't expect to like learn your gymnastics by watching spider-man leap off the wall like learning to have sex it's entertainment and you have to kind of go in with that as a you know so um but i think for you know, adults who use it as entertainment or couples who use it to sort of spice up their sex life sometimes. I don't think it's such a terrible thing. I mean, what, what do you, I don't know what your thoughts so are. So what, what I professionally think and what the church teaches do not mesh all the time. So I, you know, and from everything I've studied and read, I agree with you. It's, it's a thing. It's a tool. It, just like anything, it can be misused. Uh, if if you're using it to avoid having relationships with other human beings, I think that's problematic. I think it can be problematic if it becomes a way to avoid emotion or avoid relationships. Um, so I'm with you. And that's not the, the general teachings of my faith tradition. Right. And I think what happens in our religions when it becomes so, um, so demonized is that when guys, it's usually guys, but women too, watch yeah, it, they, they get so shamed. So I have had couples where, 
you know, she's horrified that he's watching porn, even though he watches very little porn, right? But she's horrified. She feels like it must mean something terrible about her or that he's a sex addict, right? The poor guy is watching porn once a month and she thinks he's a sex addict. But even worse than that is that the husbands feel so much shame that they keep it as a big secret. And then right. it becomes secrets between people, which is much more insidious than the porn. Right. And right. Then, you know, it's like you force it underground. This is like when you start forcing things underground, you're, you never end up in a good situation. Yeah, that, that happens in our faith community as well all the time. And people, it's viewed as cheating or, you know, some kind of betrayal or, you know, so it gets really complicated. And I think the way we handle it isn't always helpful. Uh, so yeah, I, <laughs> like I said, I, I don't have as extreme of a view as, as you know, what's officially taught, but, um, but it's, it's, it's tricky because it's so common and it's so shameful in conservative religions. Right. You know, I think that's safe to say across the board. Right. And I think that because of that, parents keep thinking their kids aren't going to watch porn and they don't talk to the kids about porn. And I want every single parent that's listening to this, every single parent to know, I promise you, there is no way that your child hasn't seen porn. And there's no way that you can keep your child away from porn. And the only way to sort of inoculate your kid against any of the negatives of porn is to talk about it, is Mm -hmm. to say, don't be embarrassed. Everybody watches porn. But I want you to understand that it is entertainment and it's not sex as in reality. And, you know, and if you see things that are disturbing, you can talk to me about it. And Mm -hmm. if you um, and if you I really would suggest that you don't watch it a lot because it can give you all these crazy ideas about what sex is. Those are the kinds of conversations that I think in the end will help kids. But just pretending that they're not going to watch it and that. Right. You know, is just not helpful. Yeah. And or just saying, oh, it's bad, it's awful, don't don't watch it. They're gonna see it. So we have to deal with that it. reality. It's the same and thing as see- the husband and the wife. The they're, secrets. Gonna, they're gonna have shame and they're gonna feel terrible right. about it and terrible about themselves. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we have one more minute. Final words, Batsheva. What what do you I would say to any woman watching this? Be kind to yourself. You are normal. I know you probably think you're not normal. You don't know anything. I'm just saying to you, you can have a good sex life. You you are normal. You are you and you are special with the way you are. And the only one who can know your sex life is going to be you. And you absolutely, a little bit of know-how, a little bit of of research, talking to professionals, you can have a sex life. Don't feel like, you're stuck in whatever bad things that are happening with you or not working for you right now. I promise you, sex is not that complicated. You deserve to have a good sex life and you can have a good sex life. That's my final parting message. Love it, love it. So I want to encourage um, everybody who's watching to get Batsheva Marcus's book, Sex Points. Sex Points. Yeah, right there, right there. You see the cover. And then um, in September, in my membership group, we are talking all about developing sexual confidence. So if you're interested in continuing this conversation with me, you can join my membership for September and we're going to just dive into sexuality and how to develop that confidence. 
So, Bacheva, thank you so much. Thank, thank you so much. So, so much. So I'm great. such a fan. All the people who are watching you, like, you are amazing, Julie. You are just, you're like a force of nature. And I oh, appreciate that you're in the world. I just want you to know that. Oh, thank you. I feel the same about you. You're doing such important work. And it's just amazing how similar our faith communities are, especially when it comes to sexuality and shame. It's amazing. Do you ever get to New York? Yeah, sometimes I have some uh, niece and nephew that live there. Okay, so I would love to have you for a Friday night dinner on Shabbat. Oh. And and on one of these days, I'm going to get to Utah, because I feel like at this point, I have so many friends in Utah. But you have to promise you will let me know when you're coming to New York. Promise. Okay. And you let me know if you ever come to Utah. I will. We have... We have lots of really good sex therapists here in Utah. So lots of work to do. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Julie. Thanks, Bacheva. Have a great night. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Ask Dr. Julie Hanks, a podcast helping real women seek solutions to life's biggest challenges. If you'd like to learn more, you can connect with me on social media at Dr. Julie Hanks and at drjuliehanks.com where you'll find information about virtual groups, coaching, and online courses. For therapy services in Utah, visit wasatchfamilytherapy.com. thought, hey, I want to talk to Dr. Julie Hanks about this question. Well, now's your chance. I want to have you on my podcast. So email hello at drjuliehanks.com with your question and the reason why you want to be on the podcast. And we may just choose you for a free coaching session.